So AJV sends, you spend a lot of time writing about hackers and hacktivists, and you spend a lot of time in places where these people communicate, exchange secrets, talk amongst themselves. Do you ever get freaked out about your own online security when you're in these worlds talking to hackers? Yeah, all the time. I feel like I'm going to do something stupid and then I will have my phone number taken over or get a random DM saying we own all your stuff. So yeah, every day. How are you greeted or how are you treated when you're in a forum in which you're a journalist, everybody else is in some degree involved in maybe some malicious hacking activity. Maybe some people are on the sidelines. Maybe there are observers and there are actors and you come in there and you're like, hey, I've got questions. I'm a reporter. What are some of the responses that you get? Well, I mean, most of them are operating under pseudonyms, right? But I feel like we have to come in there very apparent who we are. I try not to hide who I am. I use my real name, which might be inadvisable. I, I'm sure other people have different approaches, but I try to be open and transparent and say what I'm working on. And at the end of the day, I tell people that I'm writing about them and I want them to be able to weigh in if they'd like to. Usually they're okay with that. They either say, no, I don't want to talk to you, go away, or... Typically, they don't respond, right? And we put that a lot in the story. But the ones that do respond, I think they appreciate that we at least asked. I've never had anyone be really mean or rude, but I have had people tell me directly to go away. I've never been harassed or sort of piled on in one of these forums or anything like that. I try to just approach them with basic respect, even though they're doing some really dubious and heinous things sometimes. Well, on today's episode of Safe Mode, we're going to be talking more with AJ Vicens, CyberScoop reporter, about a story he wrote about a forum in which a lot of people trade, buy and sell hacked documents, data about people. It's one of the most popular forums out there. In addition to that, we'll be interviewing Victor Jora, the top cybersecurity defense official in Ukraine, and he'll be talking with us about the state of the digital war in Russia. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Mike Farrell, Editor-in-Chief at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. This episode is brought to you by Google Cloud. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. So AJ, you have this story that recently came out on cyberscoop.com about something called breach forums. First, let's sort of step back and explain to me what a forum is in this context and how criminal hackers use these forums and why they're so important and why law enforcement is also so interested in these forums. Well, if we're sort of taking the wide view, if you think about hackers who obtain data or penetrate a system and might obtain, you know, a user database or credit card numbers or information that can then be used for other types of criminal activity, they have to find a way to get it to other people. It does no good sitting on your hard drive. So they have these forums where they gather, they have like news forums, news threads, but they also talk about their latest bounty 
their latest spoils, if you will. They either trade them, they offer them for sale, they barter with them. You have forums that are focused on data breaches. You have forums based on credit card numbers. You have forums that are more used for different types of tooling and software, malware trading. And you have the forums that are used to recruit ransomware affiliates, all different types of forums. You have the English language forums, the non-English language forums. It's quite a robust ecosystem where this information needs to get traded and moved around somehow. And, and this is a lot of what happens. So for instance, if I carried out an attack on, I don't know, some big company, and I've now got access to a database full of information, I might advertise on the forum, hey, I've got this, who wants it? And what do I have a particular price on it? Or is it someone just makes you an offer? Like, how does that exchange happen? Well, so in the case of breach forums, for instance, which the story is about, they might come on there and say, hey, either I have access to the network. So, you know, an initial access, which is a key part of this whole chain. Or they say, I have downloaded the data. I have it in my possession. Essentially, who wants it, right? Here's the price. And then there, the forum itself sort of acts as a broker, sort of a middleman. And they will collect the money and then pay out the person selling the data. So it's actually kind of a mature space in some ways. These people have been, they burn each other all the time. They scam each other. But in breach forms, for instance, the rules quite clearly say if you're scamming people, you're going to get banned. So a lot of this community is built on reputation. And if you have a reputation of burning people, you're not going to get very far. So it's not like one day I could just go and say, sign up and be part of this forum. There's a process, right? A vetting process to get in, even in through the door, right? Well, on some of them, you do need to be sort of vouched for, but others you can just sort of sign up, but you have literally zero reputation and it shows up. I'm looking at breach forms right now. There's a little avatar with your image, whatever image you upload, when you joined, how many posts you have. And there's the thing that says reputation and it might say zero. So the more you trade and interact and your trades are sort of verified and validated, your reputation goes up. So then if you're looking for data and someone has a higher reputation, you might be more willing to believe that what they say they have is accurate and real. So the main forum that you've been tracking or one of the forums you've been tracking for a while was the subject of a fairly significant law enforcement investigation that arrested the person behind it who was running the forum and then seize the infrastructure. That all happened earlier this year, but then a new version sort of popped up and is now active again. How difficult is it for one, for law enforcement to sort of get ahead and take these things down? And do you think they're actively working on tracking this new forum? Just talk a little bit about this sort of, this cat and mouse game between the participants and the feds. Well, it certainly seems like a bit of a whack-a-mole issue. One forum goes down, another pops up. So this forum, Breach Forums, was actually the administrator of it. We were talking about reputation a minute ago. He had a quite high reputation, but he was arrested. He was a kid, a 20-year-old kid, arrested at his family home just outside of New York City in March. And it was kind of strange for a little while as to what was going to happen. The site kind of went away, but in that interim period, a flurry of other sites popped up trying to claim the mantle as the place to trade databases and stolen data. But they're all sort of competing with each other. The different admins of these forums might hack each other and spill the user databases. 
actually, when I signed up for Breach Forums, the new one, a couple of days later, I got an email from a rival forum saying, hey, I see you in there. I got their data. Come join our forum. So you're getting forum spam. Exactly. Ours is the real criminals forum. Come to us. So they compete with each other. But as we discussed, the reputation thing is such that the people behind Breach Forums have sufficient reputation. And so when they relaunched, even though they have some hiccups, they've sort of solidified themselves as the top dog in the database breach marketplace. And if you're law enforcement, it's sort of your job to stay on top of these things. So they have aliases, they operate in these forums. And then you can see sort of in the charging documents that come out inevitably that they do interactions with certain threat actors that are selling things. They sort of prove that the data has been sold, obtained, it's legitimate, that kind of thing. So I would imagine, I think it's a safe assumption that the FBI or sort of multiple other law enforcement agencies around the world have their eyes keenly focused on this forum. One of the things you brought up in the story is that there are English language forums, there are Russian language forums, and Breach Forums is somewhat unique because it's a large English language forum. Why is that a differentiator? Is there a bigger market for English language U.S. data? Is that why that's makes Breach Forums sort of a magnet for a lot of these people? What we have to keep in mind here is if you sort of zoom out in the geopolitics of all of this, a lot of these cyber criminal gangs are in Eastern Europe, Russia, and the Russian government has sort of, depending on who you're listening to, they either actively condone this sort of behavior or they participate in it or they, at the very least, they don't sort of crack down on it, say, the way that the FBI does. It's a very serious crime, obviously to access computers and steal data in the United States. The FBI is quite active in this, as we've discussed on the podcast. So when you have an English language forum, it sort of opens the door for a wider range of people to participate, including Americans and Westerners. And American data is quite valuable with respect to health insurance data or any kind of data, right? So credit cards, financial data, other kinds of data. So... The fact that you have an English language forum that sort of has caught on in this way is interesting in the community and people pay attention to things that get posted there. Yeah, well, your stories are always provide a fascinating view inside this world, which, you know, very few reporters go. And thanks for coming on the show, talking with us about this. AJ Vicens, CyberScoop reporter. Thanks, Mike. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Google. Do you want to protect your agency and data from the most sophisticated cyber attacks? Visit cloud.google.com security to access resources and expertise to get started today. And now we're going to talk to Viktor Jora, who's joining us from Kyiv, Ukraine, where he's a top cybersecurity official Victor Jora, thank you so much for joining us today on Safe Mode. Appreciate you taking the time out of your, what I suspect is a busy day, which has been many busy days for you. So first, I wanted to just uh, talk about, get a little bit of background on, on what you do, where you work, and then we can get into what's going on with the war in Ukraine and your your role in all of this. You are Deputy Chairman of the State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection of Ukraine. That is a, it's a long title, 
Can you break that down for us and um, tell us a little bit about what that is for those who don't know? Thank you, Maya. Um, thank you for having me today for the State Service of Special Communication and Information Protection of Ukraine is the governmental body with a special status responsible for many functions, more than 100, including but not limited to providing of special secure communications to country leaders, broadcasting of TV and radio signal, but then protection of critical infrastructure and cyber protection, of course. My role as a deputy chairman to, is to oversee the National Incident Response Team, CERT-UA, the State Cyber Protection Center, and also I'm responsible for digital transformation projects in our service. And these projects are actually external, organized, and launched to, to serve for critical information infrastructure and governmental entities. So we have the National Backup Center. We have a service platform for, for cybersecurity. We have a trusted internet connection point. And the incident response team itself serves for citizens, for businesses, and for public sector too. And you're, we're talking today, I'm in Washington, D.C., you're in Kiev, is that right? Yeah, I'm in Kiev. So it's, uh, what is today? Today's June 21st. This podcast probably won't air for a bit. I wonder if you could give us sort of the state of play at this moment with some of the things you're dealing with. I know more broadly in the where things are with the Ukraine-Russia war, it's a counteroffensive that started not too long ago. Let's just step back for a moment and give us the big picture. So provide some context around what's around you, what's going on in your day-to-day, and how things are for Ukraine right now. First of all, we are an active phase of countering full-scale invasion of Russia to Ukraine. And it's, it's June and it's more than almost one year and a half of this unprovoked, unprecedented and unjustified war against our country. And, and hopefully now we switch to a phase of uh, counteroffensive. But despite of that, we face a lot of challenges, including genocide and ecocide on Ukrainian territory. I mean, the latest case of, uh, of explosion of Kahovka, the dam, electro right. station, the dam, yeah, which caused which caused many deaths, but but also huge ecological catastrophe. Uh, our expectations of counteroffensive uh, are very high because every minute, every day is very important in saving of people's life and liberation of our territories. I know that people suffer. A lot on these on these temporarily occupied territories. So all our efforts of Ukrainian armed forces, the president of all Ukrainian people, are focused on on soon liberation of, of our territories and pushing back of Russian occupation forces. In uh, cyber in cyber posture, we are facing continuous aggression from the Russian side, which started on January 14th, 2022. And it, it continues. The number of incidents per week or per month isn't decreasing. Russian offensive, offensive cyber units continue to be very dangerous and very active. We, each day we face up to 10 cyber attacks. And in total, from the beginning of the invasion, we registered around 3,000 major cyber incidents, which we 
which we proceed manually in our team cert UA. Also, there are numerous attacks that are prevented with the use of different network protection equipment located in our central capacity for an internet access for government bodies and, of course, on, on the level for these organizations. Of course, Ukraine is not alone and we are grateful to all our partners, all the friends, and there is reconstruction conference for Ukraine in London right now. So, of course, we should uh, think of uh, bringing people back and of reconstruction from all the from all the destructions made by Russians in our country, which unfortunately continues because almost each day here in Kiev we have air alerts and we have drones attack and missile strikes on the critical infrastructure and which is which is more dangerous and concerning to our civilian infrastructure, including res residential houses, including hospitals schools, etc., etc. Every day we are facing huge challenges, but nevertheless, we are optimistic uh, and Ukraine, Ukraine shall prevail. Now, as you mentioned, what the sort of the portfolio, the area that you're focused on around the war involves cyber, cyber defense. I wonder if you could get, you could characterize the role that cyber is playing in the conflict and maybe how that's evolved since the beginning of the war. As I mentioned earlier, we consider the first strike in cyber war to be made on January 14th, when up to 70 governmental websites were attacked by Russian-affiliated actor. Some of these websites were defaced, and also the first use of Viper in this phase of cyber aggression was registered. After that, we faced a number of huge DDoS attacks and a number of serious cyber attacks on the day before the invasion. After that, it goes in parallel with the kinetic war, full-scale war in the middle of Europe in 21st century. And of course, cyber plays a great role in this, being an independent component, rather destructive, potentially destructive. And thankfully, we are able to, to maintain the necessary level of cyber resilience. But at the same time, I would, I would split all cyber attacks to three groups. The first groups and is influence operations, information psychological operations aiming in subversion in sowing of propaganda. Now they turned more to to our partner countries in order to undermine the support from these governments and from societies to to Ukraine. The second group is the data collection, so cyber espionage operations, and we observe the shift from destructive operations to more cyber espionage in the recent half a year. Um, and uh, the third group, uh, of course, are destructive operations uh, aiming in causing impact to our information infrastructures, data, different online services, etc. Sometimes uh, they are executed separately in order to bring this kind of impact. Sometimes they are used as the amplification for of psychological effect for kinetic operations. And in many cases, we observed the coordination between cyber attacks and kinetic attacks. In the first phase of war, the focus was on destructive operations, aiming, for instance, in disruption of communication of armed forces and attack on Viasat network is a great example of this. 
Then again, there were numerous attempts to interfere the air, media, etc., to use cyber as the the instrument for influence operation. But in the recent five or six months, starting from the beginning of this year, we observed shift to to uh, to mostly cyber espionage operations, aiming in gaining important information which can be used for getting advantage on the battlefield. Or for instance, attempts, there were attempts in, in getting information on supply of weapons to Ukraine, uh, of different logistical aspects of international assistance to Ukraine. So uh, there's certainly, certainly a shift, but uh, despite of that, all, all the attackers remain very active in pursuing their goals to, to impact Ukraine's digital, digital systems and uh, online services for government and for citizens. And of course, use cyber as a supportive component to, to their kinetic efforts. Can you give an example of this sort of cyber kinetic dynamic? I know there have been some reports and some disputed reports around some cyber attacks that maybe followed a kinetic attack, or you just drill into a little bit about how that's playing out specifically on the ground. There were numerous uh, cases of, uh, of these attacks, which we consider to be coordinated. For instance, uh, there were attacks on s- missile strikes on certain regions, and at the same time, attacks on, on local internet service providers were made, or there were t- attacks on information resources or web resources of uh, local authorities and governmental institutions. Again, uh, we see a lot of... Uh, signs of coordination with, with attacks on critical infrastructure. And that was a boost of these, these attacks in autumn when the Russians started to, to use cruise missiles for attacking our energy sector, our energy infrastructure. And they did both in cyber and in kinetic. Again, just a year ago, there was a statement by the largest private energy company in Ukraine, which, which observed a simultaneous attack on their network infrastructure and at the same time missile strike on uh, their thermal power plant. And there's, there's an obvious sign and reason for coordination of these attacks. And uh, we even issued a report on this from Tripoli CIP together with the center of study from the Ministry of Defense re- research uh, focusing on coordination of cyber attacks and kinetic attacks. So all, all these reports uh, together with, with our digest on cyber, cyber security and uh, researchers on different threat actors that target Ukrainian organizations are available in public. Please feel free to, to subscribe to all resources and to get the newest information from what's happening in Ukraine. We have this on web resource, well, Facebook page, et cetera, et cetera, and Twitter. Yeah. Well, Free well, 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 is very active in sharing all this. Yeah, it is definitely. You're very active on Twitter as well. Oh, thank you. And we'll include some of the links that you mentioned in, in our show notes. I'm curious, it seems, and I've heard U.S. officials talk about this, that there are a bigger, broader variety of Russian hacking groups involved in attacking various aspects of Ukraine than maybe previously thought. You've got groups that are connected to the government intelligence services, military, but even maybe some some freelance groups that are aligned with different parts of the government that are carrying out various types of attacks. I wonder if you could 
give us a snapshot of all the different players that are involved in carrying out attacks on Ukraine from Russia? Sure. Again, in, in academia, it's often it's often considered that these groups can be state state actors, state associated actors, and groups that are located in some states. Or with regards to Russian offensive cyber capabilities, I think that all of them are state or state associated, including even hacktivist groups that are famous for the Telegram channels. But uh, no doubt that in each of these groups, there is an officer of Russian special services. So these all three groups that represent Russians, Russians offensive capabilities are, are united with the same goal. They're military offensive units, hackers in uniform from well-known groups, Sandworm, APT-28, APT-29, or Gamaridon. All of them are associated with GRU or FSB or SVR or different institutions of the Ministry of Defense. Then uh, cyber criminal groups, again, they coordinate the activities with their chiefs in the Kremlin or wherever, and activist groups who are competing for attention and funding of, of more official offensive units. So they share, they share tasks, they share targets and they share resources for all these groups. So they are all united. And of course, uh, official military units re remain to be the most dangerous power targeting not only Ukraine, but also European countries, the United States, Canada, and all our friends and partners who are standing with Ukraine. How are U.S. companies helping you in defending against Russian cyber attacks? From the first days of the full-scale invasion, there were a lot of proposals of help and real help. We continue getting software, hardware, cloud infrastructures, consultancy, threat intelligence from global IT providers, from, from dedicated cybersecurity companies. And this is a huge support, which is proposed both on a bidirectional basis, I mean, in, in the framework of a private, public and private partnership. And, and of course, there is support from governments and particularly from, from U.S. government through different ways of contracts uh, of cooperation, including USAID funded projects. So this, this help and this assistance is really enormous and is crucial for our cyber defense and our resilience. And we are extremely grateful to the US government and to our partners from, from European Union and the United Kingdom for this substantial support to us. So what else do you think US or Western companies can be doing? Uh, you wrote a piece in CyberScoop, in fact, calling for a broader coalition to be formed to deal with Russia, not just Russia, Russian aggression, maybe around the world even. Can you talk a little bit about what would you like to see going forward? Well, there are different focuses. Of course, since the aggression continues and we continue countering it, we require more resource since Ukraine stands on the front line of this global cyber war. And even in case we have any licenses for software that contributes to our cyber resilience, they need, they need to be renewed. Of course, uh, since we proved uh, the efficiency of approaches 
proposed and implemented together with our partners. We need to scale up because we want to cover more of critical infrastructure. And we and CIP are especially focused on protecting of businesses. Our direct responsibility is to help protecting state information resources through our platform services, through the National Backup Center and through other services that we have here in our agency. But the, the entire cyber resilience can be achieved only with the joint efforts from business and from public sector, especially when we talk about critical infrastructure, the biggest part of which is privately owned in Ukraine. So we, we of course, we are also working on this through standardization, through requirements, through legal frameworks, but at the same time, understand that these organizations require funds, they require time, they require talented specialists to, to implement everything needed, particularly their capabilities of, of prevention of cyber incidents. And that, of course, requires a great scope of assistance, which can be shared through, through our service or through our other colleagues from the national cybersecurity systems. So that's one track. With regards to cyber correlation, it works very well in exchanging information, which is very important for us and for timely response or prevention of cyber incidents. So that is threat intel, indicators of compromise, exchange information on different threat actors, TTPs, etc. But we want to pay back with the lessons learned or with the visibility or what we have with the TTPs by threat actors that can be used in targeting of other countries. So that should be coalition of countries, uh, of states with responsible behavior in cyberspace, but again, united with the goal for this moment in uh, first countering Russian cyber aggression and second, bringing, bringing this uh, government and, and specific attackers, so people responsible for conducting all these attacks to accountability. Again, and this is a very, very important and at the same time, difficult, difficult questions. Yeah, we need to, to, dis, to discuss, discuss widely because first we should limit the access of the aggressor to technologies and we need to identify exact people standing behind these cyber operations. Some of them can be considered as cyber war crimes, especially in cases when they are supportive to kinetic, kinetic operations majority of which are war crimes or a focus on the impact to the civilian infrastructure. Again, using civilian targets in kinetic world is considered to be a war crime, especially when it causes casualties, etc. But with regards to cyber world, it's a completely new concept, which should be widely discussed with academia, with the governments and the prosecution and with the courts. One of our activities is uh, getting of all, first identifying the cases which can be considered cyber war crimes, then collecting evidences and sending them to the international criminal courts. So in, uh, this, this work is being done uh, together with the general prosecutor office and our consultants from all over the world. So I think this is the, the potentially the most effective way of bringing those people to accountability, understand that. They are, well, most of them are military servants, hackers in uniform. But again, we need at least decisions made by countries to acknowledge them, to be responsible for these cyber attacks and, and identify the mechanism, how we can reach out to them physically 
and bring them to court. This is, this is important. And through, through the potential use of fine or any other mechanism, they, we can treat them as uh, war criminals, for instance. These atrocities that done by, by occupant forces, of course, are unprecedented. But again, this is the, the first case of using cyber weapon in the kinetic conflict and using cyber weapon as the um, independent com component, separate component. These, I think it's, it should bring us to new understanding and new concept of, of treating cyber aggression. What in your mind, or from your point of view, when does a cyber attack become a war crime? I don't think we've ever seen a digital war crime prosecuted. This would be a novel. That's a very, that's a, that absolutely novel approach. And of course there should be a, a discussion with the lawyers, with prosecutors, because we should clearly identify the criteria for these crimes. But uh, as an example, for instance, I can give uh, the data collection operations aimed in getting information on Ukrainian citizens on occupied, temporary occupied territories and following, following use of, of these data for executions or for tortures or for these people in case they are former military or their current military or law enforcement or activists or volunteers. So in case Russian occupants committed war crime with prisoners, with civilians on occupied territories, and this is achieved through cyber operations aiming in getting valuable information on them that, that causes basically the following consequences that can be a part of, of this, of this uh, war crime. Or for instance, when there is a huge attack, a cruise missile strike, and then the following attack on, on media, for instance, or on critical infrastructure, on the energy sector, which can cause deaths on people in hospital or other consequences. Again, this can be considered, to my opinion, but we should have this discussion and clearly identify the criteria of, of classifying these uh, this incidents and these attacks to, to actually be a cyber war crime. So early on in the war, and I think even today, there have been reports of Americans, Europeans joining the Ukrainians in the fight, either on the ground or on the digital battlefield. Is that something that's still happening? Uh, what do you mean joining? Uh, sort of, uh, there's, a, there's a broader effort among people online to identify Russian propaganda and, put, and point that out and dispute it. There's hackers who have come to Ukraine's aid that sort of broader digital effort. I was wondering if that's something that's still going on, there's value in that and what's what uh, role I've, that's played. I've got I was speaking official assistance and volunteers. No, unofficial. Well. Yes. Yes. Unofficial yes. because official, we just discussed it and it goes through different forms of cooperation, but with regards to volunteer activity, but different cyber professionals, let's say it continues to be, to be wide. I think of course the initial the initial effort and uh, inspiration for all of this obviously decreased, but some of active volunteer groups are maintaining their efforts in decreasing the enemy's ability to attack Ukraine and our partners. It's difficult to it's difficult to evaluate the efficiency of these efforts, but uh, as the citizen, I would say, of course, it's of course a great contribution to our resilience. 
first of all, it, it's a kind of sublimation of skills and energy of people in protection and helping Ukraine. The one point and the second point is again, every, everybody has a right for justice. I think that what Russia did with violating of all uh, international laws and norms, and of course in, in cyber, that's, uh, that caused this kind of reaction by volunteers. No doubt uh, their activity is helpful for us in defending of our digital boundaries and digital infrastructures, but definitely there should be this offensive uh, mandate and or counter-offensive mandate and counter-offensive capabilities should begin through through the law with the formation of uh, Ukrainian cyber forces. That should be that should be done in armed forces of Ukraine, and they should have this official mandate. And there are still discussions on it and different versions of of law, but I'm confident that this will happen soon. So, is cyber playing a role at all in the counter-offensive? Or any other offensive operations that Ukraine? I mean, counter uh, since uh, since Russians are executing offensive operations, we can respond in counteroffensive. But with regards to counter white counteroffensive kinetic operation, which continues, since we don't have uh, cyber forces, uh, it's difficult for me to to make any statements on uh, cyber component uh, in this. But certainly there can be some capabilities in different, different security and defense sector agencies, which can be used for, for kinetic counteroffensive, particularly in getting of important intelligence for our armed forces. Can you talk a little bit about your, how you connect and your relationship with the Western intelligence agencies, such as the NSA or Cyber Command and the relationship there and how they might be aiding you in some of your efforts? Perhaps, perhaps I cannot broadly discuss, discuss these aspects of cooperation, but uh, we would appreciate any help in, in, in this area. I know you just, you, there was a cyber conference that you attended recently in Estonia, right? Ukraine was a, that was it in, it was in Estonia. The, there were numerous events in Estonia I mean, I know in the end of May and beginning of June. Yeah. But, but right. well, SciCon 20. SciCon is the one I was, was thinking yes, of. Yes, right. was one of the major events. And it's an annual conference. And uh, by the way, for the first time we were, we were participating in being an official contributing participant in CCDCOE and Ukrainian, Ukraine sent our representative, he's the triple CIP officer, but he represents all Ukrainian national cybersecurity system working at CCDCOE. So he participated in the panel and now we have this very um, important step towards integration to, to Euro-Atlantic organizations. And of course, uh, this is a very important step in co improving cooperation with our partners. And this is one very important and helpful platform for this. So looking ahead, what are your big concerns, your big worries for the months, weeks ahead for Ukraine? In regards to cyber? One of our major concern is that according to aggressors tactics, in recent months, they are focused on gaining access to service providers, to supply chains, through which of course, uh, they can bring more impact to our infrastructure. And our daily routine is to 
to maintain this resilience, to quickly identify threats, breaches, attempts to attack all these providers and critical infrastructure, because, because as I said, critical infrastructure is still in focus, uh, particularly energy sector. So that should be, that should be our focus in cyber defense. And that's why we are worried in, in maintaining of stability in our cyberspace while counteroffensive continues. Well, Victor Jora, I appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know it's late there in Kiev now. We really appreciate you talking to us. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Google. Together, Mandiant with Google Cloud helps public sector organizations become more secure from cyber attacks. Visit cloud.google.com slash security for threat reports, resources, and security best practices. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends, your mom or your dad, because you know they're probably going to get hacked if you don't. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.